On this week's prequel episode, we follow up on our There Will Be Blood listener polls, learn about books and gender stereotypes, and preview Ferdinand. Hello and welcome back to this film. This is like a podcast where we talk about movies that are based on books. And we're just going to dive right in to our patron shoutouts. I put up with you because your father and mother were our finest patrons. That's why. No new patrons this week, but we do have our Academy Award winners. And they are Matilde, Steve from Arizona, Paul, Kat Ensminger, Jeff Niederhofer, Teresa Schwartz, Ian from Wine Country, Winchester's Forever, Kelly Napier, Gray Hightower, Eli Youngs, Gratch, Just Gratch, Shelby Says, Happy Second Thanksgiving, That Darn Skag, V Frank, and Alina Starkov. Thank you all very much. Did Canada have their Thanksgiving already? Uh, yes, it, it was in, in October. October. Yeah. Why did they do that? Does it celebrate something? Uh, I don't know. Like, it, surely, <laughs> like, there's a reason theirs is in October. I think theirs might actually have been before, like, been a thing before And that's ours. that's possible. I'm just, yeah, because I, I guess that's what I'm asking is, like, if there's a reason it's in October I and don't know. not November. I don't know. Or literally any other month because it's not actually a seasonally specific uh, it says it's officially been celebrated as an annual holiday in Canada since November 6th, 1879, but then it's moved around and it was commonly on the second Monday in October. A Monday? Which is very That's strange. That's weird. I mean, I guess Monday's not any weirder than a Thursday. But I feel like it's a little weirder than a th- Thursday is practically the weekend. We have a lot of Monday holidays, though. Like a lot of Monday holidays. Yeah, I guess, but they're Labor not. Day, they're Day, like MLK Day. Sure. I don't know. I, yeah. I, I mean, it feels weird to me, but I will say that it's not, um, it doesn't sound that outlandish. It just says it corresponds to the British and Continental European Harvest Festival with a lot of the same stuff that we have. The first celebration of Thanksgiving in North America. Okay, so it goes back to the same one as ours. This is like a North American, I assume. Anyway, I'm not going to, there's a whole big long <laughs> history here, but I just wonder why. Oh, Lower Canada and Upper Canada observed observed Thanksgiving on different dates. I didn't know there was a Lower Canada. I mean, point, like, obviously, like, this geographically, like the there's a Lower and Upper Canada, but I didn't realize it was referred to as such. This was back in the 1800s. Oh, okay. The first Thanksgiving Day after Confederation uh, was observed as a civic holiday on April 5th, but that was to celebrate mm-hmm. the recovery of the Prince of Wales, <laughs> later Edward Seventh. <laughs> I don't know. If anybody knows, any of our Canadian <laughs> listeners know why October as opposed to, and again, I don't know why ours is, it's a harvest thing. It could be any time in the fall, like yeah. that's, but I just wonder, and, and if you know which was first, or if they both kind of came in at the same time. I don't know. Where's our Thanksgiving historian? We need you. Anyways, <laughs> happy second and first Thanksgiving. Let's see what people had to say about There Will Be Blood. Yeah, well... You know, that's just like uh, your opinion, man. All right. On Patreon, we had two votes for the movie and one for the book. Steve from Arizona said, 
From the very first chords of the vexing and unsettling score to the final words blurted out by Daniel Plainview, there is barely a film or book that could even compare to There Will Be Blood. Yes, I enjoyed the book, being a wannabe muckraker myself before the newspaper industry bottomed out. However, there is nothing like this ode to cinema, a timeless work that should have won every damn award it was nominated for. No offense to, old, to No Country for Old Men. It's funny how I love this film and the conservative side of my family just didn't get it. Being a socialist myself, I consider this a rather realistic look into the people that actually run our world. They lack morality and personal responsibility no matter what good they might do, for they still built empires of mythical wealth on the backs of the poor and through the bribery of public officials. The ending is especially prescient, for Plainview is not saying he is finished as in he is going to jail, he is finished as in no more rivals and no more people who are people are alive who have gotten the better of him at some point in his wretched life. There is a sadness from his delivery, like he is relieved he won the war, but also sad he has few enemies to vanquish. It's even telling his butler doesn't even flinch, for if he was ever asked of the carnage of that particular day, he would just shrug. Um, <laughs> it's... And in his best uh, Raul Julia, Julia M. Bison voice, it was Tuesday. Mm -hmm. What is that? I don't know what that's a that's reference to. That's a reference to the Street Fighter movies. Mm -hmm. the one of the maybe I don't remember if they made multiple, but in the Street Fighter movie or one of them, uh, M. Bison, who is the villain, there's like a monologue. I don't I don't remember the exact context, but somebody tells them about how he like murdered their whole family. Mm. And like they've been searching for him for revenge ever since. And he's like, for me, that was just a Tuesday. Uh, so he's okay. like dismissive of the suffering oh, he has right. caused. The casual day to day evil of Plainview perfectly normalized to a boring side note. I have already yammered on way too much about this film, I guess, but it is a truly a riveting and seminal work of Daniel Day-Lewis's career. I wish P.T. Anderson would continue to make films like this and The Master and Phantom Thread and fully embrace the torch Stanley Kubrick's ghost tried to pass to him rather than waste time on tripe like Inherent Vice and hmm. Licorice Pizza. But this comes from a man that watches certain movies far too often. Just be prepared if you ever choose the thin red line because I have opinions. Either way, good episode, and I'm glad you got to experience this, Brian. Sorry, Katie. I, I do hope you watch Magnolia and Punch Drunk Love, for those might be more up your alley. I will say Magnolia was my film uh, professor in college's favorite movie. I believe it was Magnolia, I'm fairly certain. Um, I have not seen it. Uh, I've not also not seen Punch Drunk Love. I've heard good things about Inherent Vice. Well, actually, I don't remember which one Inherent Vice is. About I've heard good things about Licorice Pizza, um, but I've I've only seen. I think this actually this surely this isn't the first Pete, Paul Thomas Anderson film I've seen. Maybe it is because I have not seen Phantom Thread or The Master. There must be some. I feel like I've seen, and I'm just not remembering what it is. But anyways, um, yeah, interesting stuff there. I uh, there was one thing specifically. That and I can't remember. Oh, I was just gonna comment about the line about it's finished. And I was like, I agree with that interpretation, or I'm finished. Uh very mm -hmm. much agree with that interpretation. I think it's clear definitely what the movie was going for. Is it's not like, oh no, I'm finished. Uh what will it, like I'm I'm going to jail or whatever it is. <laughs> I'm done now. <laughs> I've done everything. <laughs> the end. Tie a bow on this nightmare story. Um 
but yeah, it's a. Uh, I agree, it's a very good movie. I I don't know where I would put it against No Country for Old Men. That's also a very good movie. It's been a long. I haven't seen No Country for Old Men since it came out, so I don't have the greatest memory of it because it was again that was like 15 years ago. Um, I don't know where I would put it, like rated against that, but they're both very good. Anyways. All right. Uh, And our other comment is from Jeff Niederhofer, who said, there's nothing I can say about the film that has not been said to death by scores of film critics and film buffs. Suffice it to say, it's brilliant. And if you haven't watched it, you owe it to both your inner film buff and your inner inner social critic to watch it. Sorry you didn't have a better experience with it, Katie. It's okay. In terms of the book, I remember reading most of it on a lark decades ago when the title jumped out at me in our high school library. Katie did a much better job digesting it than I did, but I do remember thinking throughout my read that if it had been... I do remember thinking throughout my read that it would have made a hell of a Coen Brothers movie. In my opinion, Anderson did a lot more with There Will Be Blood than Sinclair did with Oil. But the film is such a loose adaptation that I still often wonder what the Coen brothers would have done with the source material. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Coen brothers, I think, would have been a, another one. This, they, they would have been great for this. Although, I think it's it wouldn't have been... Their movies have a lot more humor in them. Mm-hmm than this movie did not that this movie there's didn't a, have some there's a funny fair moments. bit of humor in the book is like there? a kind of a sarcastic yeah and then like maybe dry so humor. then maybe it would have felt more in line with the book because the the movie isn't there i mean there's some moments here and there but yeah. overall it's not a particularly humorous film no um whereas coen brother movies even at their most serious are still fairly comical like mm-hmm. i'm trying to think of, like no country for old men is honestly probably their most serious one of their most serious films uh, and it's still fairly humorous throughout I think they would have made. I think they would have made a good adaptation as well if mm-hmm. they had been interested in it. But um, also, um, to your note about me digesting the book better, uh, I I would not have done as good of a job with it in high school. So yeah, <laughs> it's not a fair comparison. No. I'm two English degrees deep. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. All right, over on Facebook, we had one vote for the movie and two for the book. Trevor said, if I knew how land surveying worked, I would not tell you out of respect. (laughs) But alas, I too have no idea how it works and don't care enough to learn how. There you go. Glad he agrees. Thanks, Trev. And Jeremy said, I haven't read the book yet, but I rewatched the movie with a steak dinner and some whiskey, ew, vodka, and loved it. When I first saw it in 07, I found it beautifully shot and Daniel Day-Lewis's performance captivating, but felt it was painfully slow. Did not feel that way the second time around. Loved every minute of it. Had a blast. Not sure why the difference, but there you go. We'll be looking into the book, too. I mean, I will say, I don't know your age, um, but that was 15 years ago. If you saw it when it came out in 2007, for me, that was my senior year of high school. just, Just guessing maybe we're around the same age. Um, if that, if I had watched this in high school or, you know, freshman year of college or whatever, I would have been like, oh yeah, it's a good performance and it looks pretty, but man, it's boring. Yeah. But again, I I think it's just one of those things that as you get older, you learn to appreciate different elements and stories take on different meanings and you're able to get more out of them than you are when you're younger. I think we just suck at media literacy as young people like it's just a yeah. learned skill yeah it is. um and uh also i think you you become more patient as you get older 
um, and, and are able to sit with things that are not as, you know, fast paced or whatever as, as other things is a reason why kids, you know, watch more cartoons and, and stuff like that. And, don't watch three hour long <laughs> biopics or whatever. Um, it just has to do with how our brains work and stuff like that. So I would have bet that now I could be wrong. You could be 65 now and watched it when you were 50. I don't know. I'm just speculating based on our listenership that you're probably in the, you know, maybe that's what's going on as you saw it the first time when you were much younger. Um, but anyways, either way, uh, glad you enjoyed it this time around. Cause that was also my experience with it. Although I didn't watch eat a steak while watching because I had to take notes. So, all right. So we didn't have any comments on any other platforms, uh, but on Twitter we had seven votes for the movie and one for the book, and Instagram we had four votes for the movie and two for the book. So our overall winner was the movie with fourteen votes to the book's six. There you go. All right, it's time to learn now a little bit about kids' books and gender stereotypes. No matter what anybody tells you, words and ideas can change the world. Um, so this is kind of just going to be me talking because I had <laughs> I mean, some, that's what our podcast I, yeah, is. Yeah, I guess that is what it is every <laughs> week. But I just had some, like, thoughts uh, that I want to put out before we, like, read and watch and talk about this adaptation. Mm-hmm. Um, so kids books um, and like gender stereotypes, gender roles, this is a topic we've talked about before, uh, but I wanted to circle back around to it for this episode. We last discussed this in the prequel to um, our Hatchet slash A Cry in the Wild episode. And in that episode, we mostly talked about why toys and books for children are often divided into two groups according to the gender binary, mm-hmm. right? A four boys and a four girls pile um, and how that practice can serve in reinforcing the gender binary. Mm-hmm. But today I want to talk about children's books that push back against those stereotypes. All right. Now, as you will learn in a few minutes during our book facts segment, The message of the story of Ferdinand has been interpreted multiple ways over the decades um, with everything from a kind of general be yourself message to like open political propaganda, especially due to the time period during which it was published. More on that later. Okay. As always, each interpretation is open to discussion. Um, Everyone is allowed to see something different in a text. That's a very personal thing. Um, and But as a text ages, the historical context can sometimes kind of fall away from it, which leaves space for new interpretations, different interpretations. Mm-hmm. Um, so many people, myself included, interpret the story of Ferdinand as belonging to a genre of children's book that aims to deconstruct gender stereotypes. Okay. So in the book, we're told that bulls are rough and tough, grow up to be fighters. But our title character doesn't have any interest in that. He's gentle and peaceful, and he just wants to smell flowers. Mm -hmm. Now, even if it weren't the original intention of the text, there's a clear analogy to boys who aren't into stereotypical, quote-unquote, boy things like roughhousing or sports or what have you. Yes, the antiquated um, idea of what boys are into. Now, here in 2022, we've been through a couple waves of feminism, and there are quite a few books that do this for little girls, but there are fewer that do this for little boys. 
Another one that comes to mind for me is 1972's William's Doll, which is about a little boy who wants to play with dolls instead of, quote unquote, boys toys. Mm -hmm. Which Um, are dolls with guns. (laughs) (laughs) You're not wrong. (laughs) Uh, so William's Doll is a bit more on the nose with its like social critique than Ferdinand is. Um, and I wanted to bring it up because as I was writing this segment, I scrolled through its reader reviews on Goodreads um, for William's Doll. And I saw more than a few saying that it was too dated to be relevant anymore and that we no longer needed that kind of messaging. On which one? For William's Doll. Oh, uh, Okay. Um, and re- really? list listeners, I wish I could say that I Holy agreed. Cow, yeah. I, I wish I could say that I agreed Good with that. Um, unfortunately, I think we need stories that deconstruct toxic masculinity quite a lot oh God, right yes. now. Yes. I maybe think, more I think than, we need more of them. More than ever, maybe. Maybe not more than <laughs> ever, but as much as ever. <laughs> um, I don't want to get into like a deep dive on toxic masculinity it's different than just masculinity on its own. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, yeah, and, and there obviously. are some people that I'm never going to convince right. that I'm talking about two different things. Yes. Um, but toxic masculinity teaches that to be gentle and loving is to be weak. Mm-hmm. And that kind of messaging isn't going to go away unless we make a conscious effort to undo it. Yeah. I, the thing that really stuck in my mind when you mentioned, and I, it's something I really agree with just a few notes back when you said, um, you know, in 2022, we've been through a few waves of feminism, and there are quite a few books that, you know, deconstruct gender norms for girls and, and women or whatever, um, but not as much so uh, for boys. And I think that's very true. And obviously, there's more now than there More now than there have there been have previously. Been. But it is still a thing that I think often isn't as popular yeah. And as normalized as it is for girls for like little or <laughs> little women, um, <laughs> which is a good example, I guess. But <laughs> um, but for girls uh, and in like youth literature and stuff like that, I think you're much more like at least, again, just purely like how it feels. I'm not citing any actual <laughs> mm-hmm. like data here about like the breakdown of, of stories that um, deconstruct gender expectations and stuff for <laughs> respective binary genders um but it is you know i you know there's a whole big thing that's been a thing this year um there's a whole large group of men boys what have you who do not (laughs) understand and are looking for meaning because um they're they they've consumed very um limited sort of types of media that describe masculinity in a very limiting way. And because of that, they now as, you know, young adults, um, teenagers, whatever, um, seek out and, and fall victim to incredibly toxic versions of masculinity that are more popular now than maybe ever. Um, your, your, your Jordan B. Peterson's, your, mm-hmm. um, your Joe Rogan's to some extent. Yeah. <laughs> your Andrew Tate's <laughs> who was very popular recently, uh, before being kicked off every platform like he should have been. There was a whole big thing. I, I remember seeing videos and stuff and people talking about how there's this whole, there was like a whole epidemic of like, you know, preteens and young boys and stuff, literally like quoting and like spewing this like toxic nonsense from these like manosphere mm-hmm. talking head people um manosphere is just short if you're not in as terminally weirdly online as i am um 
is just the, the phrase that kind of encompasses a lot of the the speakers within like the um alpha male red pill blah 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 all of that stuff um sort of sector of the internet um but i i and i think a big part of that is that the big part of the reason that that happened is became it is still this big problem with boys with young men with grown men for that matter um it's because it is not we have not had the same sort of um i don't know if renaissance is the right word but like uh, overabundance of popular stories for children that represent masculinity in yeah different well, yeah, ways yeah i think it, that it hasn't been a part of our cultural conversation the way that it has been for for women and for girls yeah and um, a big part of that is because i think because the, the women were coming from such a place of disempowerment yeah. within our patriarchal society those stories naturally sort of um, are seen as more subversive and become more like uh, there's more of a need, quote unquote, for them mm -hmm. when you're when you are like, you know, back when we were going through those early waves of feminism. It seems very reasonable to me that stories about the different ways, you know, of upsetting the patriarchy and, and expressing your gender as a woman differently than you've been told you should, blah, 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 is because you're when you're literally the underclass in society on the gender scale uh, or on the gender continuum, you know what I mean? It, it makes a lot of sense that those stories would become popular and plentiful. Whereas you don't need those stories for men necessarily. When I say you don't need them, I say I like as a society, we sort of re didn't realize we needed those stories for men because men were like, quote unquote, doing fine. <laughs> if that makes sense. I don't know. Yeah. No, I, yeah. I think we, we have not, been focused on that because we i don't think we realized we needed to yeah but we do yeah yeah absolutely yeah yeah that's what yeah 100 percent, absolutely um so with all that in mind what i'm really interested in looking for with this 2017 film adaptation is how it handles that messaging um in an era when gender and gender stereotypes are so particularly at the forefront of our larger cultural conversations. I'll be particularly interested to see it. 2017 is such a weird point because that yeah. it came out in 2017, which is like it was, it had been working on it. They would have had to have been working on it for, you know, several years at that point. Um, whereas I think this conversation really started to crystallize in like 2016 onwards. No, yeah, you're right. And so this film kind of came out right at the beginning before, like we were having a lot of the conversations we are now. Um, but it's definitely, there was, it was, those conversations were starting and were being had just maybe not to the same extent now. Yeah. And I, so I am interested to see how much of it, how relevant it feels, or if it feels like it was like a bit too early and missed the, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It wouldn't surprise me if it missed the wave on a few things because it was just like a year or two ahead of like the conversation. I don't know. Or maybe it will be great. We'll see. I am also quite interested to see. But before we get to the film, we're going to learn a little bit now about the story of Ferdinand. People think they got you all figured out based on how you look. But it's not that simple. Especially when it comes to me. I'm a little more complex. Sorry, I almost killed you. Ow. My good boy. I had the perfect life. 
<laughs> Until one day, all yours, little guy. Everything changed. There's been a mistake! Tina! The story of Ferdinand is a 1936 children's picture book by American author Monroe Leaf, illustrated by American writer and illustrator Robert Lawson. Um, it is the author's best-known work, and it's one of the illustrators best-known as well, although Robert Lawson notably also illustrated Mr. Popper's Penguins. Hmm. Um, so Leaf is said to have written the story on a whim one afternoon in 1935, largely to provide his friend, illustrator Robert Lawson, who at the time was relatively unknown, a forum to showcase his talents. On the illustrations, uh, the landscape in which Lawson placed his story is more or less real. Um, he faithfully reproduced the view of the city of Rhonda in Andalusia. I don't know if I'm saying any of that right. It's in Spain. Um, For his illustration of Ferdinand being brought to Madrid on a cart. Um, And Ronda is home to the oldest bullfighting ring in Spain that is still used. Hmm. Um, I I wanted to include this note from the Wikipedia page because I thought it was interesting, even though I couldn't find anything more about it because all of the articles it linked to were in Swedish. (laughs) Um, according to a documentary from sweden the story has a basis in truth a peaceful bull named civilian that's what i would assume um was raised on a farm outside salamanca Salamanca in the early 1930s and the spanish press campaigned for it to not have to meet its fate in the bullfighting arena it was pardoned mid-fight, but then the Spanish Civil War broke out and it never lived to see its home. Oh. According to Wikipedia, according to this Swedish documentary. There you go. Um, but back to the book. So the book was incredibly popular in the United States when it was published. Its first run by Viking Press in 1936 sold 14,000 copies. Uh, The following year saw sales increase to 68,000, and by 1938 it was selling 3,000 per week. Wow. That year it outsold Gone with the Wind to become the number one bestseller in the United States. It's pretty popular. Yeah. Um, And as of 2019, this book has never been out of print and has been translated into more than 60 languages. Mm -hmm. So back in 1938, uh, Life magazine called Ferdinand, quote, the greatest juvenile classic since Winnie the Pooh and suggested that, quote, three out of four grownups buy the book largely for their own pleasure and amusement. The article also noted, noted that Ferdinand was accused of being a political symbol. Um, saying that, uh, quote, two subtle readers see in Ferdinand everything from a fascist to a pacifist to a burlesque sit-down striker. I don't understand. I have not read this or seen the film. I'm interested to see how you could interpret him as a fascist. I'm not sure either. <laughs> from what I'm, the very few I, little I, I, I would know. have to think that that would be an interpretation from fascists trying to say that they're not fascist yeah maybe or like people who don't know what fascism is and i mean we know there are plenty of or i guess it in the political context because isn't the 30 weren't we 
right around the Spanish Civil War yes. and Franco and all that I'm sort of stuff. I'm about to okay. get to that. So I guess you could have that could people could try to like shoehorn. I don't know. This is interesting. Again, having until we actually see the story, I would be interested to see. But yeah. And I also don't know what a burlesque sit-down striker... I mean, I know what a striker is. <laughs> I know what a striker the burlesque is, sit-down. and I know what burlesque means, yes. but I'm not sure how those two things work together. To me, that just sounds that's like a, a thing. That, that sounds literally, like a historical mystery. That sounds like a historical version of modern right-wing nonsense. Like, they're just, like, slamming together... Yeah. Like, uh, like when, uh, like when people say, like, uh, um, there's the one that what were they always said, um, a postmodern neo-Marxist or whatever, which yeah. is like doesn't even jo- like doesn't even, even make sense. Yeah. It's like saying like just these are words that are scary burlesque. That's a scary thing because it's women. And then sit down, <laughs> striker. They're lazy and they're communists. Like you know what I mean? Like it's just. Yeah. I feel like that's what that is. <laughs> um, yes, but an important historical note going into this story is that it was published during a time when fascism was on the rise yes. globally very yeah. much. Yeah, obviously, yeah. Yes. In the 30s, <laughs> yeah. Uh, the Cleveland Plain Dealer accused the book of corrupting the youth of America. That's how you know it's good. Uh, while the New York Times downplayed the possible political allegories, insisting that the book was about being true to oneself. So this book was released less than two months after the outbreak of the Spanish Civil War. So it was seen by many as a pacifist book. Yeah. Um, it was banned in many countries, including See, Spain. that seems like the obvious reading. But yeah, I think you're yeah. right that it would make the most sense that maybe fascists trying to like... Trying to label it as fascist. Like, we're as, not fascist. That's fascist. Yeah. Yeah. We're, we're like the Ferdinand. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. Um, in Nazi Germany, Hitler ordered the book burned, another way you know it's good, yep. um, as, quote, degenerate there democratic propaganda. Yep. Following the 1945 defeat of Germany, uh, 30,000 copies were published and given out to f- for free to the country's children. Nice. Uh, back in the U.S., the book was so popular with the public during the 30s that it was used in various commercial products, um, from toys to breakfast cereal. Uh, over the years, the character has also been referenced in many different properties, including both Marvel and DC Comics, World of Warcraft, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, and Stephen King's novel Rose Matter. Hmm. The band Fallout Boy named their second studio album From Under the Cork Tree after a phrase from the book. Oh. Ferdinand was also the codename chosen for the Australian Coast Watchers during World War II. And... Aside from the feature-length film that we'll be discussing, Disney also adapted the story as an animated short called Ferdinand the Bull, which won the 1938 Academy Award for Best Short Subject Cartoons. There you go. Amazing. I just had to go look up and see, because I was interested for any of our World of Warcraft fans out there, Ferdinand is an NPC that can be found in the Jade Forest. He's a Tauren, obviously. Tauren are like bull bull people. people. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So there you go. All right, now it's time to learn a little bit about Ferdinand the film. Now, I know when you look at me, you think big. You're ginormous. I can't wait to show you to the rest of the guys. They're going to fertilize the yard. You think scary. (gasps) Who are you? I'm Una. I'm Dos. And I'm Cuatro. What happened to Trace? We do not speak of Trace. 
You think someone who can fight? I am here to select a bull. I'll take that one. Sucks to be you. I am not a fighting bull. Can you guys help me out? This is the beautiful horsey side, and that is the stinky bull side. Have a nice day smelling terrible. My hoof claws, my hoof gritter. Ferdinand is a 2017 Blue Sky Studios film directed by Carlos Saldana, who also directed Rio, Rio 2, Ice Age, Robots, Ice Age 2, Meltdown, basically all Blue Sky's films he has been a director on, pretty much. Film was written by Robert Baird, uh, who wrote Big Hero 6, Monsters University, and was a writer on Big Wolf on Campus. Very exciting for me. <laughs> Tim Federley, uh, who was a writer on the high school musical, the musical, the series. And Brad Copeland, who wrote on Arrested Development, uh, wrote Wild Hogs, and on My Name is Earl. The film stars John Cena, Kate McKinnon, Bobby Cannavale, Peyton Manning, Anthony Anderson, David Tennant, Gerard Carmichael, Gina Rodriguez, David Diggs, Gabriel Iglesias, and Flula Borg, among others. The film has a 71% on Rotten Tomatoes, a 58 on Metacritic, and a 6.7 out of 10 on IMDb. So middling reviews all around. It made $286 million against a budget of $111 million, And it was nominated for Best Animated Feature at the Oscars and the Golden Globes. So in 2011, 20th Century Fox acquired rights to the story of Ferdinand. And immediately they attached Carlos Saldana to direct. There wasn't a ton of production notes, so I kind of went in and found some interesting stuff. The score was composed by John Powell, who was not a name that like stuck out to me but has a truly fascinating resume full of all kinds of stuff, including Face Off, the, the 1997 like, Nick Cage, John Travolta mm. film where they take their face Switch off. Faces. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Shrek, the Bourne Identity, and subsequent Bourne movies, The Road to El Dorado, mm. Drumline, The Adventures of Pluto Nash, X-Men The Last Stand, Happy Feet, Solo, A Star Wars Story, among dozens and dozens of others. Like a truly eclectic... <laughs> He's also done most of, um, I believe, most of Blue Sky's movies, which Blue mm -hmm. Sky did like Rio and yeah. Ice Age and all those movies. Uh, you mentioned this, uh, but the village where Nina and Ferdinand live in the film is in Ronda in the south of Spain. And like you said, it's known for having the oldest building in the world. Or sorry, you didn't say that. You said oldest bullring. That's what I wrote. Yeah. I, why did I read that as <laughs> building? I was, I was like, so that can't confused. possibly be true. <laughs> 1700s? That's not true at all. I've been in older <laughs> buildings. Yeah, okay. Uh, the, this village is known for having the oldest bullring in the world, built in 1785. Uh, and you also mentioned that Ferdinand the Bull was adapted as a Disney animated short shown in 1938 that won Academy Award uh, for Best Animated Short. So, uh, apparently in the film, there's a thing with where they use calming goats. Uh, and that is a real thing, but not usually for bulls. They're actually normally for horses. Anxious horses, particularly race horses, feel a calming and soothing presence from having goats in the barn or stable with well, them. That makes sense. It's my understanding that horses are very anxious. Yes, they are. <laughs> I don't know why goats make it better, but apparently they do. <laughs> Maybe they just suck up all the energy out of the area. It could just be a thing where, like, they don't like being alone, but you also can't leave horses, like... Necessary. I don't know. I have no mm. idea. It's interesting. I, I would like to know more about that. People who know things about horses. Uh, if we have any of those, I don't know. <laughs> we have any horse girls or guys or whatever. Um, so uh, this is an interesting thing. Spanish bullfighting critic uh, of El Pai, 
Antonio Lorca, in a critique of the film, said that the film's message is, quote, profoundly unnatural, and that the, quote, renunciation of the lead character to its animal nature is a lie that manipulates children who will, be, who will become, quote, tomorrow's anti-bullfighters. So when it says bullfighting critic, I believe it means literally he's the guy that writes about bullfighting in the oh. news, not like a critic. Cause of I was bull- like, yes. that doesn't make any sense. I did the same thing. I read it like four <laughs> times and I was like, wait, what? I think what is being said here is that this person is being critical of the film because they like bullfighting mm-hmm. and are a fan of bullfighting. Even though it says bullfighting critic, I think it literally means like a movie crit. Like they like yeah. go to the bullfights and like write up articles about, you know, whatever. Um, and they're saying this movie's nonsense. It's going to turn everybody into anti bullfighting people, blah, 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 something or another, I think. It was, it, it was a little confusing when I read that, but yeah. So, getting to some reviews that I thought were interesting. Ben Kennisberg of the New York Times gave the film a positive review, saying, quote, Unlike in the book, Ferdinand earns the arena's cheers for not fighting, but the crowd's sense of surprise will elude audiences attending Ferdinand. End quote. I don't. I'm gonna exactly have I'm gonna have to see exactly what happens to yeah. understand that quote. I, <laughs> I think. <laughs> I assume they mean the crowd sense of surprise in the film will elude audiences, or the crowd in the like the literal crowd in the film. Yeah. Their surprise will not. You will not be surprised as a movie watcher because it's all very op. Like right. I think is the review is like oh it's fun it's earned but it's like expected I think is kind okay. of what they're getting I think it was a little hard to parse again without knowing what happens in the movie. Uh, James Dyer for Empire Magazine gave the film three out of five stars, saying, quote, inoffensive fun, but unlike its paperback forebear, the cinematic Ferdinand is unlikely to stand the test of time. Katie Welsh of the Chicago Tribune gave the film a negative review of two stars, saying, quote, with a lovely voice performance from Cena, the spirit of Ferdinand does shine through, but the rest of the story filler is mostly forgettable. Tara Brady of the Irish Times also gave the film a three out of five stars, saying, Ferdinand may lack the all-out charm offensive of the studio's 2015 Snoopy and Charlie Brown vehicle, but it's not too far off in terms of quality and sweetness. And finally, writing for RogerEpert.com, because he had passed away at this point, Susan, uh, Polish last name, <laughs> Loz... Hoy, I think that's Pol- so many Zs. Uh, Loz... Loz... China, Wolos China, Los China. You don't pronounce the W at the beginning. I think I don't know. I'm I, sorry, I know. Polish listeners, if you're out there. I can't. I'm pretty sure that's Polish. Uh, she gave the film three out of four stars and said, "Quote: Enough of that kind of bull. What the world needs now is Ferdinand, sweet Ferdinand, a rare breed of bovine who takes a stand against aggression, competitive rivalry, and conforming to the expectations of others." End quote. So there you go. Uh, they were a fan. All right. Susan was a fan. Before we wrap up, I wanted to remind you, you can do us a giant favor by heading over to patreon.com slash this film was lit. Support us there for a couple bucks a month and get access to all kinds of stuff. And at five bucks a month and up, you get access to bonus content, including two recent episodes where we put out, we talked about Hellboy, which just came out this weekend. And right before that, we talked about Crimson Peak. So mm-hmm. uh, two Del Toro movies back to back. If you want to hear our thoughts on those, give us five bucks a month and you can go listen to that. And then we'll be doing another bonus episode here very shortly on Labyrinth. So look out for that in the coming weeks. Patrons, Katie, where can people watch Ferdinand? 
Well, as always, you can check with your local library or a video rental store if you still have one of those. I wonder how much longer I'll get to keep saying Probably that. Probably not too much longer. <laughs> uh, or you can stream with a subscription to Disney Plus, Fubo, or DirecTV. Um, Fall else fails, you can rent it for around three to four bucks from Apple TV, Amazon, YouTube, Vudu, Redbox, DirecTV, AMC Theaters on Demand, or Spectrum TV. There you go. That is that. Uh, yeah, I'm. Well, I'm interested to see. Have you read this? Have you watched this? Yes. Uh, no, I have not watched it. But I you have read this. Yes, before. I had a, a as a child. A, I had a battered secondhand copy of Ferdinand as a kid. I don't remember ever reading this one. I'm not saying I didn't. I very likely did. It would I just surprise me yeah. if you hadn't with your mom being a preschool yes, teacher. It would surprise all. me as well. I'm just <laughs> saying it doesn't it doesn't stick out in my memory as like, uh-huh. oh obviously I remember this one. Yeah. So yeah, again I, I read tons of books like this as a little kid. So I'm sure I probably did. I just don't recall. Um but yeah I, I'm interested to see uh how the film does. Um again I think the thing I'm most interested in is to the thing we talked about in the learning thing segment about to see how it handles like the gender Mm -hmm. stuff um, in 2017 coming out in 2017. This is interesting. It's going to, it's like a right at the nexus point. Yeah. I feel like, and I feel like it was mostly written before the nexus point and came (laughs) out after the nexus point kind of. So I'm interested to see how it, how it goes and how it's aged in just five years. Yeah. For sure. Yes, absolutely. That's going to do it for this episode. Uh, We'll be watching Ferdinand in one week. Until that time, guys, gals, non-binary pals, and everybody else. Keep reading books. Watching movies. And and keep keep being being awesome. awesome.